Ah, Wednesdays. <laughs> this is Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I am Cherry Gregg. Avi, in just a little bit, Leah Plunkett, author of Sharon Hood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online, will joins us to talk about when to pump the brakes when posting pictures of your little ones in your life on social media. And guess what? We want to hear from you. Thanks to everybody who's already commented yeah, online so and tweeted already. and everything. Well, we still want more. We want more. Do you post pictures of your children or grandchildren or nieces and nephews online? Or are you a strong opponent? Our number is 888-477-9499. You can email studio2 at whyy.org. Pop quiz, Jerry. Oh. Can you name all three branches of the U.S. government? Absolutely. <laughs> you said that with a little bit of I, sass. Come on now. How dare I come ask? on now. I'm I... sorry. I'm sorry. Forget I asked. But by the way, yes. one in six Americans surveyed by Penn <laughs> can't do that. We're going to talk with Annenberg Public Policy Center Director Kathleen Hall Jamison about civic engagement and where we stand as a nation on the topic of civics. Plus, on point host Meghna Chakrabarty is here. But first, we have to turn to some news that shook the Temple University yesterday, Avi. As we speak right now, the Temple University community has gathered to mourn the loss of their leader, Joanne A. Epps, acting president of the university. President Epps died after falling ill on campus at an event on Tuesday afternoon. She was attending a memorial service for Temple for Charles L. Bloxon, the curator of the Bloxon Collection. When she fell ill, she was taken to the Temple University Hospital where she was pronounced dead. The entire community, Avi, is in shock. They are heartbroken and devastated. The university tweeted, there are no words that can describe the gravity and sadness of this loss. I should mention that President Epps spent nearly 40 years at the university. After eight years as dean of the law school, she was appointed to the position of executive vice president and then provost. And she filled in as acting president after Jason Wingard resigned in April of this year. So it's just been I mean, it's devastating. I'm a Temple alum. I met her a few times. Just a wonderful person who had a major impact on this region to folks who knew her and to those who did not. Yep. And like you said, a lifer. One of those people who makes the institution, you know, her mom had worked at Temple. Um, She got her first job at the university, I believe, at age 16 and um, dedicated her life to the university and people like that. That make an institution work, and uh, obviously just a really sad day for Temple, and send our condolences to her family, to the entire Temple community. And I have to say, um, to die in service, I mean, that is just so hard to digest. So I double that with sending of condolences. Shifting now to politics, um, yesterday Democrat Lindsey Powell easily and sort of predictably won a special House election in Pittsburgh. We're telling you about it in the station here in Philadelphia because her victory gives Democrats, once again, a slim state house majority, 102 to 101. This has been going back and forth know, seemingly forever because Democrats, when the first, you know, the, the main elections happened, 
They did finally win back control of the General Assembly for the first time in a long time, but it was by one seat. Mm -hmm. And when you win something by one seat, any little ripple in the force can send it back to a tie. And in this case, Democrat Sarah Inamorato had resigned her seat because she's serving or attempting to serve in a different uh, political position in Allegheny County. And so they had to have this special election. It's a very strongly Democratic seat. It was not a surprise that the Democrat won. Um, But because there was some period of interregnum here, things kind of ground to a halt in Harrisburg. And this election perhaps will kickstart the agenda again. Yeah, but we have to remember there are still split chambers. You know, the Pennsylvania Senate is yeah. uh, run by the GOP, and now the Democrats have held on to their slim, slim majority. But this means that neither party will be able to make, you know, major headway on big issues like abortion, voter ID rules, or school vouchers. And if you recall, Avi, and we talked about this on the show, there had been that budget impasse because Mm -hmm. of the split chambers. So I don't know how much this this kind of, I guess, holds the line Um, and and they'll be forced to work together. And notably, uh, so she won the election. They still have to certify the election. That probably won't happen until next month. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's still some uh, uncertainty around all of this. But this is what happens when you have a split state, right? Like any tiny little it's like it's like a grain of sand in a microchip. Yeah. All you need is sort of one thing to go awry and then all of a sudden the balance of power can shift or be disrupted or continuity can be disrupted. So in this case, we're going to go back to where we had been. Um, which, as you mentioned, is still a state of some level of gridlock. Yeah. And it's interesting because that's democracy, right? <laughs> in Pennsylvania, it sure is. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of. Pennsylvania politics. Oh, yeah. Some social media trolls have claimed, but get this, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman has a body double. I'll say it again. People think that he has a body double. Okay, no, people don't really think this. They but it's people a conspiracy therapy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Philip Bump from the Washington Post says Fetterman would be hard to double, which I truly believe as well. And these conspiracy theorists, they have insisted on this. Um, the claims have gone viral, racking up millions of views. Of course, Fetterman, being Fetterman, had a reaction. He's When asked about these theories during a brief interview with HuffPost on Tuesday, he said, I have to talk to my other. <laughs> and he also added, it's all true. I'm Senator Guy Incognito. And he refers to a joke from the TV show The Simpsons. So he's always a good sport. But come on, guys. Come on. But you, the, the Philip Bump thing, you got to explain the Philip Bump thing. Yeah. Yeah. So th- they're saying he's hard to double because he is an unusual size. Yes. Yeah, six yeah. foot eight. Um, in between six foot eight and six foot nine, depending on what source of information you use. But um, it doesn't really matter for our purposes. But with that height, and he's, some said he's around 270 pounds. I don't know. I didn't check the scale for him. But they said that, you know, that's t- hard to find somebody that's a body double when you're six foot nine, yeah. 270. It's just it's hard. tough. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, you got to convince the person to do it. That would be a tough sell. Yeah. And he's you're the bold only person. And, you know, yeah. he has a lot of different traits. Well, you could shave yeah. your head. But, that's yeah. true. That's true. Um, yeah, it is. I mean, I think. And you got to wear the, the sweatshirt the and the shorts. <laughs> like, it's a whole situation. <laughs> so the, the serious reaction to this, because it's a silly story. Yeah. It's a stupid yeah. story, to be honest. But um, the, the serious reaction is that Fetterman has always been. As a candidate, as an aspiring politician, mm-hmm. very much online. Yeah. And when yeah. things like this happen, whereas some politicians might ignore them, try to muffle them, he, he, will he, respond. he, he plays into it. Because I, I think it's sort of part of his brand to sort of acknowledge what's going on 
in the world of uh, the, and on like political Twitter and p the political internet and amplify it and sort of show that he gets it on some level, even though this is such a ridiculous thing. And so it's it's no I mean, we got to. And we talk about it. I mean, you think about Fetterman. We talk about him quite often. He's a freshman senator, but right, he gets right. a lot of national coverage. Exactly. Um, for for, I mean, we got yeah. something in our inboxes this morning. I won't read it, <laughs> yeah. but it was a press release from his office that was, again, referring to something that happened on the Internet. It was patently ridiculous. It's the type of thing you would never get from any other senator. But this is part of his, his brand, his brand, his identity. And in some ways, it has been successful. I don't know if it connects with everybody, but I do think it connects with some parts of his base. For sure, for sure. And um, speaking of bases and speaking of politics, politics. in some ways, conspiracy theories, yeah. uh, an annual survey from the Annenberg Public Policy Center tests people's knowledge about government and the U.S. Constitution. It asks participants if they can list the First Amendment protections, the three branches of government, mm. and if they feel the Supreme Court is doing a good job. Here to talk about the results and how they reflect civic engagement is Kathleen Hall Jamison, director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center. Kathleen, welcome to Studio Two. It's good to be with you. So Kathleen, so tell us first, what was the purpose of the su survey and what were some of the major takeaways? Well, the survey is an attempt once a year on Constitution Day to remind the nation of the importance of understanding our system of government. And uh, also, it's an attempt to increase the likelihood that people are aware that they have some of the protections that are inherent in our Constitution so that we can increase the likelihood that we use those protections, we cherish those protections, and we understand why they're there. Uh, and importantly, also, if we understand how our government is structured, we're better able to move to action when we want the government to do something in the interest of our communities. What was your big takeaway here, Kathleen? What was the stat or stats that really jumped out? Well, first, there is some good news. Two-thirds of Americans can name all three branches of government. Now, you'd say that's a pretty basic, you know, foundational piece of knowledge, because if you don't know that there are three branches, you probably can't make sense of most news about mm. our system or about politics. It means you actually can't understand when the president has some prerogatives or the Congress has some or what the role of a court is, because you don't know that we have those three and they have distinct responsibilities and that we have checks and balances among them. So the good news is two thirds can name all three branches. The bad news is that means a third can't do that. 17% can't name any. Wow. And if you, if you can't name the branches, you can't really build much other knowledge up about how our system works. So if there's a question about why it is that government isn't getting much done, you have to know that, well, we have divided government. And as a result, a veto would come into play if you could get things through the House and Senate, but you're not going to get things through the House and Senate on most occasions because the Republicans control one house, the Democrats control the other end on many consequential issues they don't agree. So if people say government just isn't working, well, one of the reasons you might say government isn't working by some definitions, that is getting things done, is you've got divided government right now. Don't know you've got divided government because you don't know you have three branches, you don't know what you're going to do in order to affect change. And so, Kathleen, I want to talk civics education because we work as journalists, Avi and I and our whole squad. And we know that, you know, folks, they can't make, you know, um, sense of the news if they don't have a basic understanding. And your survey found that majority of folks, 60 percent, remember taking a civics, civics class in high school. But 60 percent said they did not take one in college. Should education shift? What should we be doing? 
Well, first, why do we want people to take a course that focuses on civics at some point in their educational career? It's because having taken the course, at least remembering that you've taken the course, increases the likelihood that you have the foundational knowledge that helps you understand the system. And foundational knowledge consists of things such as understanding we have three branches, what they do, what checks and balances are, why there's a veto provision, how it's exercised, what rights are protected by the First Amendment, um, what the role of an independent judiciary is. If people don't understand those, they don't, they can't accurately answer foundational knowledge questions, they're more likely to say when we ask them, if the Supreme Court issues some rulings you don't disagree with, what should we do? And then we give them some options. And one is, well, maybe we should just abolish the Supreme Court. You increase the likelihood the answer is going to be, well, maybe we should just abolish the Supreme Court. So the knowledge matters. And having had or having recall having had a civics course increases the likelihood that you have the knowledge. So that's why it's important. It not only helps you understand our system, increases the likelihood that when you vote, you will know what the consequences of your vote potentially are. It helps you understand why it is we have a jury system, what protections we have against being unjustly accused in this system of government. All of those things increase the likelihood that you appreciate the government that we have inherited across time, the structures that we've inherited across time, and where we disagree with the way in which it's functioning. We understand ways that we can intervene in the system. Our vote's really important in order to affect change. Kathleen, we only have about a minute or a minute and a half left, but I wanted to uh, note that you asked people about the five rights enshrined in the First mm-hmm. Amendment, and by far the most popular answer was freedom of speech. People knew that one. They didn't know the others. Why do you think that is? Uh, it Probably because of all of the rights. That's the one we talk about most often. But when we talk about it, we often talk about it incorrectly. So I can remember times when our young son, then young son, said, you know, Mom, you're infringing on my free speech rights. And you know, I said to him, do you really think I'm the Congress? Because the First Amendment protects you from Congress encroachment, from government encroachment on speech. It doesn't say anything about your parents. So when we ask people whether they're free speech rights that mean that Facebook, for example, has to put anything up that anybody wants to say on Facebook, people think the First Amendment protects the right to speak on Facebook. It doesn't. It's about encroachment by Congress. So people can name the right, but how well they understand it is open to question. And that was Kathleen Hall-Jameson, director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center. Kathleen, thank you for joining us today on Studio Two. Good to be with you. Coming up, Cherry, we're going to talk about the ethics of posting pictures of your kids online. A juicy topic. We have a lot of, of comments already, but we, yeah. we, would, we would solicit more. Studio Two at WHYY.org. That is the website, excuse me, the email address. The number is 888 888- Four seven seven nine four nine nine. Before we go to the next segment, just want to acknowledge something, um, and this is about one of my favorite singers, songwriters, and a local guy. Jim Croce, a local legend, went to Upper Darby High School, Villanova University, died in a plane crash on this day 50 years ago, but his musical legacy lives on. This is his song, I've Got a Name, which came out one day after his death 50 years ago today. Me down the highway, go 
pass me by Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Studio 2. Welcome back. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And Cherry, Mm. I have some news to break right here on Studio 2. Last night, for the first time ever, my infant daughter slept through the night. Yay! Yay! Congratulations! (laughs) I'm giving you a round of applause, literally. (laughs) You know, it's funny, like, when something like that happens, it seems seems so small. Mm -hmm. But as a parent, it's such an all-consuming part of your life that when you have even a little developmental milestone, you really want to share it with people. Like, that tugs at me every day. I just want to share something like that. That seems so insignificant, right, to Mm -hmm. to the person I'm sharing with it. But to me, it seems like everything. It's a big deal. Well, when we started this show, Cherry, I was asked, would I be comfortable talking about my daughter Mm -hmm. on the show? And when I was asked, I I honestly didn't know what to say. I talked it over with my wife. And uh, I ultimately decided that, yes, I would be comfortable sharing some things about her, but I didn't want to use her name on the show. Mm -hmm. And, And why did I decide that? Honestly... I have no idea. I don't know why I drew the line there whatsoever. But you were being very thoughtful. But then again, in a sense, yeah, yeah, you were being super thoughtful. And I appreciate that. That's one of the things I like about you. But all of us don't host radio shows, right? Mm-hmm. But these days, we all do have an audience. Every picture, every video, everything we post on social media about our kids or younger relatives can theoretically reach every corner of the internet. So, Should we be posting content about kids? Should we set guardrails like Avi did, right? In a sense, About what we post, what we share about them, and how often. To help answer those questions, we have, we do what we do here at Studio (laughs) 2. We bought in an expert. We bought in an expert. Leah Plunkett teaches at Harvard Law School and is the author of the book, Sharenthood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. Leah, welcome to Studio 2. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and if you have rules about what you share or post, give us a call, 888-477-9499, or email us, studio2 at org. And so our first question, and this one is for Avi and all the <laughs> parents and uh, grandparents and aunties and uncles who have kids in our lives that we love. What should we be thinking about when we have this really cute picture? What should we be thinking about in our minds before we hit post? We should be thinking about something that I like to call the holiday card rule of thumb, right? So I will date myself. I am old enough to remember when folks sent hard copy holiday letters that went to everybody from their great aunt to their boss. And I think before we hit post, if we are going to go through with hitting post, and we can talk more about that in a minute, we should think about calibrating what we are sharing to fit a holiday card norm. So if you would not hit post on something that you knew everyone from your great aunt to your boss was going to see in hard copy, then I would stop and think before sharing that on social media. 
So what do you consider holiday card appropriate? Because people are going to have a different barometer mm-hmm. for that. <laughs> um, you know, some people would only put you know, the Christmas sweater photo mm-hmm. and maybe some very sparse details about their kids in that holiday letter. Some people would share quite a bit. So, Leah, how do you sort of try to define that standard? I try to define that standard in two ways. The first is I would encourage all parents as well as grandparents and aunts, uncles, and other trusted adults and caregivers in children's lives to stay away from a couple of key things in that holiday card norm. I would try to stay away from pictures of kids at any stage of undress, even if it's a beach photo, right, or a seemingly innocuous bathtub photo with bubbles, I would say those those don't need to go on the holiday card. <laughs> I would also try to stay away from sharing a full name, exact date of birth, and location information, so where a family home is or where a school is. The other thing, though, after after we get through some of those basic guardrails, I would encourage folks to consult their own thought compass or with a partner if there's one involved and really think about what you and and your partner and your family value. How do you think about the ways to promote sharing and connecting and those positive virtuous goals with other values that you and your family might have, such as around privacy. And so I want to read a couple comments because we've gotten so many. Uh, One comes from Andrea in Philadelphia who says, I do not post them partially naked, no matter how cute their roles are. I do not share their given (laughs) names or any identifying features. And I am mortified by how much information is freely shared about children on these platforms. Their pictures are pulled and used in ways that would shock these parents. Mm. And so I want you to sort of we've laid like the the general guardrails here um, mm. based on your um, Christmas card photo definition. But I want you to kind of give us some risk that we might not necessarily think about when we hit post. Some risks that we may not think about when we hit post include the fact that tragically and infuriatingly, there are bad actors out there that could take pictures and videos and information that we share about our kids and use it to perpetrate criminal or illegal acts against our children. One example we really might not think of, and I say this as a former legal aid and consumer rights lawyer, is identity theft. So if bad actors are looking to obtain a credit card or other loan product in the name of somebody else, minors can be very appealing targets because they typically don't have a credit history legitimately in their own name. So that's one category of risk. Another category of risk is that we really, as individual users of social media and other platforms, don't have a good way of knowing exactly what is going to happen with images, videos, and data. And that's not our fault. That's because a lot of times those terms and conditions of use and service and those policies are pretty hard to parse. And even if we do try to parse them, the platforms tend to reserve a lot of flexibility to themselves to kind of do what they want with Mm. the data for their business purposes. Last but not least, we do run the risk of having our children lose a private space to play 
and I don't mean board games. I mean to make mischief, make mm-hmm. mistakes, and grow up better for having made them, and learn to tell their own stories and figure out who they are and who they wish to become. I have an email here from Caitlin who says, before my daughter was born, my husband and I decided we weren't going to share her picture on social media. But my daughter was born in June 2020, and most of our family and friends didn't get to meet her because of the pandemic. Sharing her on Instagram helped people in our lives get to, quote, know her at a time when it otherwise wasn't really possible. Our current policy is we'll continue to post pictures of her on our accounts until kindergarten. Building off of that email, Leah, there is such a strong impulse to share, and it's not a nefarious impulse on the part of the totally. parents, I think. It's about connecting mm-hmm. with people. Maybe there's a little ego sprinkled in, but you really just want to connect with people over this beautiful, amazing person in your life. I mean, we have to acknowledge that that impulse is there, and how do we acknowledge it in a way that's sort of safe for everybody? That impulse is absolutely there, and it is a beautiful thing. I will share. I am the very proud parent uh, with my husband of a 13-year-old and an 18, sorry, an eight-and-a-half-year-old, mm-hmm. as well as two dogs and a guinea pig. And the, <laughs> the impulse to connect around them and share about them is so strong. So I really do want to validate and honor that impulse. So building on your thoughtful question, I would, th- I would think about suggesting that all of us who wish to honor that impulse and also think about privacy protecting ways that we think about kind of minimalist sharing, right? So maybe if we want to make sure that the people that we know and love get to see our kiddo, even if they're far away, we think about an old-fashioned text thread, right? Mm -hmm. Possibly through a, a secure messaging app. Or we think about, again, sounds old fashioned, we think about an email. Those are still digital ways of quickly transmitting information. They are not as curated, they are not as polished, but they are easier to restrict in terms of viewership. They're not perfect, but they are a bit easier. And if you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Leah Plunkett, a faculty member of Harvard Law School, also the author of the book Sharonhood. And we're talking about what you should be thinking about when deciding whether or not to hit post on photos or other information about children that you love. You can email us. Do you have rules around this or guidelines? You can email us, studio2 at whyy.org. You can also call us. Our number is 888-477-477. Nine four nine nine. Uh, Christina from Philly says grandparents are forbidden from sharing photos. I rarely post only to close friends and with no faces used. My basic approach is an appreciation for wanting to share aspects of my life as me, but also shield my kid from distribution of his face and the way that would could be twisted and used in unintended or even dangerous ways. So Avi has mm-hmm. a a really cute baby, by the way. Um, I who I'm sleeps a, through the night. Who sleeps through the did night? Did it once. Did it once. As of today, we're, we're, this is going to be a trend. I'm okay. predicting. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's and, truly. Amazing. Yeah. And I, I think about like you know that's just for the parent, right? Yeah. But there are so many other people like in the life that cascade that may take photos. That I mean, what should be the rules or guidelines that you just put out there to say? Um, you know, this is what, these are what my rules for not just us in this household, but everybody in our lives when it comes to our children or the children we love. I encourage folks to think about sharing 
and sort of digital privacy conversations the same way they would if a child had an allergy or another mm. health condition. Mm. I think that it is necessary, uh, sometimes truly as a life or death matter, for a parent or a caregiver to be able to say to another adult who may be taking care of the kiddo, hey, please make sure this kiddo doesn't eat walnuts, right? The actual example of an allergy my one of my kiddos used to have. And I think that it also is something that those of us who are hosting or temporarily taking care of kids that aren't ours should affirmatively ask, right? Any food restrictions, any food preferences. And I think digital health really should be normalized the same way. So I applaud the person who wrote in for having digital health care, if you will, um, rules of the road that she shares with grandparents and others. And I would encourage all of us, whether we have kids or we're taking care of someone else's kids, or we're just out at a playground or a community event to recognize that before sharing anything on social media about a kiddo that's not your own, you really should ask the parent or caregiver mm-hmm. as well as the kid themselves if they're old enough. And I don't mean that from like a legal, like you should have a consent mm. form. Like I just mean like common courtesy, just just ask. <laughs> yeah. Now we're kind of assuming as a default, right, that what most people are talking about is Facebook, Instagram, the big social media apps. Abbott from Philly says he's heard about something called Spotlight, which seems safer than IG. And we have a caller, uh, Joshua from Fishtown, who I want to bring in, who also perhaps has a different strategy for how to share photos without incurring some of the risks that we've been talking about. Joshua, you are on Studio 2. What is your question or comment? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I think this is a great conversation. Um, So my family, instead of using Facebook or Instagram and posting pictures to hundreds of people, we have a shared uh, Apple iOS album with, mm. you know, the 10 or 12 people who we want to see these pictures. We post to that and they get to see them and they know we don't want them to repost anything. So it goes to exactly who we want and we control who sees, you know, the kids. And then we don't have to worry about um, them sharing or, or them getting out there. Interesting approach. Uh, mm-hmm. Leah Plunkett, uh, can you comment on that? Is that a safe way of doing it? Or maybe there are some risks involved in doing it that way as well. But I think from the convenience level, like we really it, we can't all do Christmas cards all the time. So is, <laughs> is, is that is that a is that a sort of a, a one way to approach it? That is one way to approach it. And I think it's an excellent way to approach it. It is really thoughtful. It is building a community of trusted people that are known to the family and included in the family offline as well as digitally. And it is using the efficiencies of digital tech, which I think pretty safe to say all of us or maybe almost all of us uh, choose to use if we are fortunate enough to be able to have a device and connectivity. I want to respect the fact that, unfortunately, there are plenty of folks in the United States and around the world who are on the wrong side of the digital divide and aren't able to Mm -hmm. be in a position to make these choices. But for those of us who are, I think a choice like that, a curated choice of, uh, of sharing to a trusted smaller group of people with a clear articulation of what those rules of the road are for resharing. I think that's awesome. I want to, Rachel posted on Instagram, my kids got very angry with me over the years for sharing info or photos about them. 
without asking. And I learned that it's important that I get their permission first. As a result, I don't always have all the best family pictures posted online, but I'm giving my (laughs) kids agency in their digital footprint and showing my respect for them. I want to kind of piggyback on this because I had my, my nieces and nephews visiting me and they were very like, they wanted to curate any photos Mm -hmm. um, that were posted. And one of the things that I saw them do and that they do is they prefer to use like, stories which disappear or snapchat which disappears after 24 hours to the extent that you want to share things but have like these types of controls on social media is that should we be looking to some of the models that the younger people use as a way to protect um, their own identity well, we should definitely be looking at the models that some of the younger people use because the filters are really fun. I was they recently are. introduced. <laughs> um, so um, so I, I like the way I look much better through a Disney princess filter. I'm not joking. <laughs> I, just, I look so the awesome. sparkly stars <laughs> yeah, that show exactly. up. <laughs> I look so awesome. Um, but I, I do think that ephemerality is a wonderful goal in terms of a digital platform choice, right? Like it's sort of the equivalent of, you know, back back when uh, I was growing up in the brick and mortar world, right? You could pass a note to somebody in school, right? And then throw the note out. I think the teachers may not have liked it, but I think it was a great way to communicate. I do think though that the, um, the ephemerality offered by some of these platforms isn't actually as foolproof as it may mm. seem. Uh, people can screenshot. I know some of these platforms will notify you if somebody has taken a screenshot of your post, but it can't stop the other person typically from taking that screenshot. And of course, you could also, I don't know why you'd want to, but you could from a device perspective, like bring out a laptop and a phone and use you know, the phone to take a picture, right, of what's up on, like there's so many ways that you can record something using one or more digital devices. So I, I think that ephemerality is a, an appealing feature, but I think it is not as foolproof as mm. folks might think. We are speaking with Kathleen Hall Jamison. Uh, excuse me. No, we aren't. That was our last. That was our last. What am I doing? Leah Sorry, Plunkett. Leah Plunkett, author of Sharon no, no. You got to get your notes in order when you do this stuff. I, Leah I, Plunkett. I guess oh. I, no, I had a Kathleen Hall Jamison filter on. I guess it's okay. If you have any opinions on civics, let me know. Leah Plunkett, author of Sharon Hood, Why We Should Think Before We Should Talk About Our Kids Online. Why I Should Think Before Words Come Out of My Mouth. Um, so, so let me just sort of give like the dad's perspective here, which is. Um, I get all this and I get that there's some risks, for instance, of putting up like an Mm -hmm. Instagram story, Mm -hmm. but it feels to me like the risks are small. And on the other side, there's this risk, um, this broader risk of feeling isolated as a parent, feeling like you're doing this thing and you can't share it with anybody and no one knows about it and you can't share the good stuff and you can't share the bad stuff and and you can't do this thing that feels so healthy. Um, How would you advise me? Because I, because I, because I do, I get it with like someone could take a screenshot type of thing, but I also just worry like, am I being paranoid and am mm. I preventing myself from doing this thing that that you know, be honest, would make me happy? Yeah, and look, the trying to slog through nights, especially with a sleepless infant, toddler, or kid, are like some of the worst <laughs> moments of a of a parenting journey, and there are a lot of moments like that where it is really hard to get through. You want commiseration, you want connection, you want advice. So I I totally respect that. And I also think, especially coming out of the pandemic, the 
challenges and tragedies in some instances of loneliness and isolation are all too real. So I would say that if it is possible for the parent who is looking to build community and connection and get information to try to adopt one or two of some of the more privacy protecting approaches that folks have called in about. So not posting faces, blocking faces, trying to have a more defined network that you're sharing with. I think that seemingly small things like that can add up to be a big deal Mm. and that they can help you over the long term curate a more minimalist digital footprint for your kid in the positive sense, while maximizing in the good sense, your ability as a parent to have community and have connection. Yeah. And we only have a couple minutes left, but I want to read some more of our comments. We have Manuel from Point Breeze who says he just doesn't do it with regard to posting pictures of kids. He said a lot of sick people online. Eugene from Philly says some parents, caregivers got to be mindful of what type of photos they post. They post. Sadly, some parents, quote, internet pimp their kids with lack of common sense. And Maurice from Philly says they only post their face only with a nickname. Hmm. Um, Hmm. I want to sort of like, I know this is a largely unregulated area, but are there any laws protecting kids at all in this area of social media and online information? And if there were to be some, what would it look like? And we only have about a minute or so. Minute and we have about a minute and a half. (laughs) There is not a comprehensive national privacy law or laws that protects our young people's private information digitally at this point. Some states have laws that are better than others, but in terms of specifically the question of are there laws that are going to limit or restrict what parents can share about their own kids, unless the parent is crossing the line into criminal or illegal behavior. And tragically, there have been some instances of YouTube families that what has been posted on Mm. those channels has crossed the line. But outside of those very outer boundaries, parents really are the gatekeepers legally and practically of their kids' privacy when it comes to the choices that the parents are making. And so all of these tips and insights and questions, all of this conversation that we're having really is how we as a country are going to make our way toward healthier digital norms for our kids and ourselves. And I get the sense that you don't really see the legal landscape changing in a big way. I was reading an opinion piece of <laughs> I yours, don't. and you feel like parental prerogative is probably the American way? I think it is. I do think the legal landscape is changing and should change around what I call commercial sharings, but most people right. call influencers, right? right? Um, so we do need to have, and we're starting to have, practical ethical regulation of kids who are shared online by their parents for money. And that's a matter of labor law reform. But outside of labor law reform, I don't really see the legal landscape changing on kids and digital privacy. I wish it would. Don't think it will. I, I will note, by the way, there is a proposed piece of legislation mm-hmm. right now in Pennsylvania around this issue. We'll leave the conversation there, and I will state very clearly, that's Leah Plunkett, author of <laughs> Sharonhood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. Leah, really appreciate the time on Studio Two. Such a pleasure. And thanks to all of our listeners who sent lots of emails, made lots of posts about this very important 
topic. Coming up next, we're going to be speaking with Meghna Chakrabarty from On Point, which airs right here on WHYY 90.9 at 8 o'clock at night. She's going to join us here in Studio 2. Looking forward to that. Stick with us. You're back with Studio Two. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And I'm Hobby Wolf and Aaron. And I am Cherry Gregg. Pretty good, Meghna. I know I gotta work on it. <laughs> so I, we'll, we'll have to call you next time we need to fill in for the show. We, I'm not sure I can host. hack we it. We can do a three host. Well, I, I think we do a three host thing. You, you're free, right? <laughs> you only do one national show, Meghna. Just one. <laughs> well, for our listeners at home, you probably are familiar with that voice, but we'll tell you it is Meghna Chakrabarty, who is busy usually with her own program WBUR's On Point. It airs weeknights at 8 right here on WHYY. We wanted to catch up with her to get to know more about her and get some little sneak peek behind the scenes. So, Megna, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You guys, last segment got me all worked up. I have thoughts. You oh, have really? thoughts. Go oh my god, I was like, I was fidgeting back <laughs> in your, in your <laughs> control room. Okay, before I, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Can you share them? Oh, I can. <laughs> Would you want me to? <laughs> yeah. First, I want, okay, I, so I am a very big extremist on the issue of children and online privacy. So, but I wanted to know from you yeah. about the conversa- the kind of conversation you had um, with your wife about the decision that you made regarding talking about your daughter. Yeah. Um, it was pretty brief. So I'll also say that last segment was my wife's idea. Oh, she did it for her. Me. Yeah. Um, and so, and I said, it's a great idea. I think the funny thing about the conversation is that it wasn't deep. It was sort of like, because there's a million things going on. I was like, oh, yeah, they want to know, like, is it okay if, like, we mention that we have a kid on the air? And she, you know, yeah, sure, whatever. And I was like, yeah, maybe we won't do names. And it was kind of, it was very quick. Yeah. And that's the thing I think what I was picking up from Leah is, like, a, a lot of the decisions happen like that. They're very quick. It's no one really thinks this stuff through. And I did not and, think it through. And I just want to point out that, Magna, you did the thing that a lot of journalists do when they're oh, in the yes. hot seat. <laughs> yes. And I saw it, but I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> All right, so we have but to move I'm gonna on. But I'm going to call it out, okay, <laughs> because you turned the question. <laughs> you know you do. Okay, you know, yeah, it's true. But so, uh, so I will, I will pay like, back. I, 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 will, I will reciprocate kindly. Uh, no, it was a great segment, actually, because yes. um, I was like thinking and had all these opinions. But just to share with you why I was so worked up is because mm-hmm. like in my own life, uh, I'm a, like an absolutist, like Liberty Bell hardcore absolutist, minus the crack, um, about... <laughs> talking about my own mm, offspring yeah. i tried to not do it for years but then i realized that being a mom was quite uh, um, a major part of the, what i bring to the table yeah. so i finally i settled i've never said their names their ages their genders but i do say things like offspring my progeny a young person i might know <laughs> that's interesting uh, my charge uh, and so and that's as far as i'm willing to go and in addition on social media nothing zip not Zero. a zilch, not a thing. So there's probably people that follow you on social media that are, are not even aware that you're a parent. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. So we do, we were told we, that we yes. have to find some stuff out about you. We do. In the time allotted. Yes. Even though I do want to continue talking <laughs> your about Your whole staff that. is nodding their heads. They're like, so, okay. yes. Okay. Get control of your interview okay. back. Okay. Sorry. Yes. And so okay. th- first of all, like you, um, one of the things that I'm obsessed with, and Avi knows this, that in addition to being the host of On Point. You've had a number of roles at WBUR. Yeah. 
but you also started out as an engineer. Mm -hmm. I'm also a career changer. Um, Tell me why you decided to hit the button. Well, I loved studying engineering. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, But when it came time after I was done with my graduate degree, which is actually in environmental science, I had this revelation that I wasn't passionately in love with the actual practice of science and engineering. Understand. And my dad uh, was a, a lifelong scientist, and he would always tell me, daughter, in order to be a great scientist, you have to be so excited about your experiments that you can't sleep at night. It has to keep you awake at and night. And you were asleep. I was getting a lot of <laughs> healthy sleep. Yeah. I was like the best time of life my, of my life in terms of sleep. Uh-huh. So, so then I realized I didn't have that same passion. And I happened accidentally into journalism, but all of a sudden I was like up at night being like, did we ask this question? What about this story? So that was what told me I was on the wrong path before. And you are a multi-award winning, national award winning uh, journalist. We'll put that out there. Yeah. Okay. So this is my question about On Point. Mm -hmm. It's about picking topics for shows because I feel like you all are, you're not so much like beholden to the news cycle. Mm as some of the other national shows. And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I just feel like you guys are more likely to zigzag a little bit off of like what the, what the other shows tend to be doing that day. Mm -hmm. So is that intentional? Like how do you go about picking show topics? Um, And how much do you care about the capital letter news cycle? Okay. So let's take those backwards. How much do I care Uh, in my own life as a news consumer? Marginally. Uh, in terms of what we offer our listeners, I care zero mm. about mm. that news cycle because, yes, it is intentional because there are um, a myriad of other options from journalistic organizations, Twitter, X, what have you, you know, that, yeah. that will do that day's news better than we will. Right. So um, I just thought there's there's no point in us trying to. Uh, do the day's news when everyone else by that time, where whenever we air, has mm-hmm. heard it. Okay, and then also in terms of trying to understand the world, I'm far more interested in understanding the current, the deeper water currents. Yeah. Let's put it that yeah. way. Than the surface waves we see. Their surface waves are tiny and they're constant. Do I really need to know like every single wave and when it's going to hit my life? No, but I want to understand actually the deeper forces that are driving those surface waves. So we call, I think uh, my executive producer likes to call it being news adjacent. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I even quibble with, with that, honestly, because first of all, what is news? We can debate that until the, uh, the cows could, come home. Yeah. And and secondly, I think it's more about uh, exploring and relevance than yeah. it is about staying on top of the news. And I, I got to ask you about local news, because a lot yeah. of local news publications have been shrinking and there's news deserts all over the place. But you focus in you. You like doing local news stories, have done some really cool stuff about Boston, Talk about the importance and where do you feel like we are, you know, and I know we only have like a minute and a half. We are in terms of just quickly as a as a as an industry. Okay, Um, yeah. The industry as a whole is in trouble. Right. We we know that newsrooms closing down, et cetera. But what you guys are doing has become so essentially important to the functioning of our democracy that I will never let go of my passion for local Local news, news, which is why we try to start a lot of our shows with a uh, deep local focus, and then again, mm-hmm. find those deeper currents that make it relevant to everyone. Because I genuinely believe, really do, that our civic society depends on informed folks about where they live. Yes. And so thank you both 
for doing this show. Oh, wow. And that's Thank kind you. of like oh. we just we want to we want to sort of um, take off from where you guys leave off. Yeah. Does that make sense? That so where we need each other. So before we wrap up, the tone and feel of the show, mm-hmm. I, I think is I don't want to say totally unique, but I think it's close to unique in that it's got You can the, say it's totally it's unique. Totally it unique. Is. It's, it it is totally unique. It is totally unique. It's that there's there's a feeling of pre-produced mixed in with organic live conversation. And I feel like most shows go one way or the other. You can tell which way we mm-hmm. are. Um, but, but why why try to live in that middle ground? It's a tough place to live, but you guys do it well. Yeah, I mean the simple answer is that Radio is a very beautifully flexible medium, and we wanted to be able to capitalize on all the different things that radio can do. And some stories are told better in some ways than others. Um, And also, like you said, people go one way or the other with their shows, and by trying to do everything all at (laughs) once, we're trying to. That's how we're trying to form our niche. And you're going to be the new uh, co-host of Studio Two on on top of that. (laughs) Oh yeah, I would never usurp you guys. Never, (laughs) never. Not after today. And we'd love to have you. But I just want to say we really enjoyed our chat today. That is Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. And you can listen to that show right here on WHYY 90.9 FM weekdays at 8 p.m. I mean, should we also tell people they can listen to it, the podcast? That doesn't help WHYY. No, but listen, they can... listen to WHYY <laughs> okay, first. Okay, there we go. And listen. then if you miss the show, then you find the exactly. podcast. Exactly. Or you want to re-listen. Yes. That is Magna Chakrabar. Thank you so much, Magna. It was a pleasure. For coming. And I hope you're enjoying your time in Philadelphia. Great. It's been wonderful. Um, so should we wrap up the show, Cherry? We should, I God, think. we covered a lot of ground today. We did. Um, our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks was the engineer for today's show. You can head on over to WHYY.org slash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts and you can rate and you I can review. I was about to say that, but you got it. <laughs> From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much for listening today and for joining us.